Hello, my name is Mallory Jenna Robinson. Join me on A Hateful Homicide, a true crime podcast dedicated to telling the stories regarding the murders of transgender, gender non-binary, and gender diverse community members in the United States and abroad. This is A Hateful Homicide. 911, what's your emergency? Yeah. transgender woman has been shot and killed in North Baltimore, Alpha. In the U.S., trans women of color have a life expectancy of just 35 years. This happens on a daily. Another one of my friends got killed right up the street from here. These cases are true. The victims are real and their voices matter. This is A Hateful Homicide. The murder of Gwen Amber Rose Araujo. Thursday, October 3rd, 2002, New York, California. Warning, the following episode you're about to listen to will contain evidence of misgendering. Listening discretion is advised. It started with the disappearance of a local teenager. Born Edward Araujo Jr., the missing 17-year-old had been living as a young woman by her chosen name, Gwen. She told me that she didn't identify with her body. I too told her that society was not going to be so accepting. The investigation led police to 19-year-old Jared Neighbors. He described a late-night party on the evening of Gwen's disappearance. The crowd knew Gwen as a young woman by the name of Lita. Two of the men at the party had sexual relations with her on another occasion. That night, they confronted Gwen with questions about her gender. And when they discovered she was biologically male, they reacted with violence. Six Newark young people were there that night. As the confrontation escalated, two would decide to leave without ever calling the police. In a series of attacks, Gwen was punched, slapped, kicked, and struck in the head with a skillet. Gwen's plea for her life and her last words, please don't, I have a family, didn't stop the young man from beating and strangling her to death. For the longest time, I would just hear her scream and it replayed in my head over and over. I could hear her say, please don't do this to me, I have a family. Just to think about all the pain that she suffered that night, and then nobody could help. It was hard. The discovery that local youth were accused of killing Gwen intensified the tragedy. You gotta ask yourself, what got people to the point that they would feel that this behavior is okay? And then not just one, but several. I mean, in some ways, they're the result of. of the educational system and the cultural system here in New York, and you gotta say, how this happened? It's Thursday evening in New York, California. 
It's the western edge of the city is near the southern end of the San Francisco Bay. New York, known for being a little conservative, it's one of three cities that makes up the Tri-City area. This is where 17-year-old transgender female Gwen Amber Rose Araujo was living. On the evening of Thursday, October 3rd, 2002, she was invited by her friend Nicole Brown 22-year-old cisgender female to a house party. Gwen had known Nicole, Nicole's boyfriend Emmanuel, as well as Emmanuel's brother Jose and Paul Merrill. So Gwen goes over to the house party and that is the last time she is seen alive. It's not until the next morning, later that morning around 10 a.m. when Gwen's mother Sylvia Guerrero begins to realize that her daughter isn't home. It's Friday and Gwen is supposed to go to school. She was only supposed to attend this house party, you know, invited by Nicole just for a few hours, no more than until 11 p.m. She left around 5 p.m. on Thursday night and she was only supposed to be there again until about 11. And so, but again, Gwen and her mom had had some family issues in the past. And so Sylvia thought that maybe it was just Gwen staying out. But at the same time, she was becoming concerned because it wasn't like Gwen to stay out without letting her know. So by October 4th, by 10 a.m., you know, that morning, Gwen hasn't went to school. The school has now notified Sylvia that Gwen is missing. Um, Well, not missing, but she missed school. So this is even alarming Sylvia more now than ever. And so what happens is, is that Sylvia, along with her brother, Raul, um, they go to the Alameda County Police Department to file a missing persons report for Gwen. Because Gwen been 17, just a few months shy of her 18th birthday and was a senior in high school, the detectives weren't quite sure that she was a missing person or more as a runaway teen. So Sylvia and her family pleaded with the Alameda County Sheriff's Office as well as the New York Police Department to really file a missing persons report, which was officially done on that Saturday of October 5th, 2002. And so this missing report is filed and Gwen's information is put out there. It is stated on record that Gwen identifies as a trans woman. And so this is also a very important note for the detectives because now there's an added element of threat and danger for Gwen being trans, being in New York, which is again, conservative, but also supposed to be one of the safest cities in California. And so detectives begin to search for Gwen and they go back and trace her last steps, which would be the party that she went to on the night of October 3rd. By the time that the detectives, Detective Matthew Sanchez and Julie Ortega, as soon as they went over to the home, that Jose and Paul Merrill were renting, they noticed that the house seemed to be very clean. They noticed that the home seemed to be smelling fresh of bleach and other cleaning agents. And so the detectives wanted to know, 
you know, what happened here. There was a 17-year-old young girl who came to this party a couple of nights ago and she didn't go to school the next day and her mother and uncle have reported her missing. Well, Jose and Paul admitted that they knew of Gwen and that she did come to the party. Um, She was invited by Nicole and their brother, um, Emmanuel. And so they knew of Gwen through that association, but they stated that Gwen had left around 10 p.m. and she seemed to be fine and no one um, had seen her since. Well, detectives also wanted to know, Sanchez and Ortega wanted to know who else was at this party on the night of October 3rd. And Jose and Paul admits that not only was their younger brother Emmanuel and his girlfriend Nicole, who invited Gwen to the party was there, but also a friend of theirs by the name of Michael Magidson and Jaron Neighbors, as well as Jason Cazares. So at this point now, you have a total of at least six or more people at this house party, um, including Gwen herself. And so they wanted to interview every per- everyone who was at this party and they wanted to know how did the party go? Was there any kind of conflict that Gwen would have had with someone? And the guys did admit that Gwen and Nicole specifically weren't friends and that they had an issue or a history of competing for guys. Nicole, who was about five years Gwen's senior, had met Gwen a year or two prior in 2000, the year 2000. Uh, Gwen at that time was 15. Nicole was about 20. Gwen had already began her ginger journey about two years in at this time. And so Nicole knew Gwen as Gwen. But um, nonetheless, Gwen, this beautiful Latina trans girl who just had so much fun energy ahead of her, um, met Nicole at a party, at a high school party. Nicole was known for um, hanging out with high schoolers. And so she met Gwen at a high school party back in the summer of 2000. And the two had had a friendship, but kind of more of like an adversarial more, you know, jealousy, competition, friendly, sometimes not friendly. Um, But nonetheless, the two seem to get along enough to hang out with each other in social settings. Well, Nicole invites Gwen over to this party on the night of October 3rd. And Detective Sanchez and Ortega asks Nicole the history between her and Gwen. And she admits that her and Gwen are friendly, but not friends. Um, But she too adds um, to Jose and Paul's point, as well as the others, that though her and Gwen weren't good friends, that she felt bad. Gwen, who was, you know, wanting to get out there and date, she thought that this would be a great way for Gwen to um, do that. She also, Nicole, admits to Detective Sanchez and Ortega um, around October 6th of 2002, this is three days after Gwen um, at this point is missing. And so she does admit that um, Jose and Paul, as well as Michael and Jason, have all hung out with Gwen before, that this wasn't their first time meeting Gwen. And so Gwen felt comfortable coming back to the home a second time because she had known all of them and allegedly had engaged in some sexual activity with two of the men. 
And so she um, knew them. She knew of them. And so they had this interaction. And so this was news to Detective Sanchez and Ortega because they're trying to understand how does Gwen know everyone? Who was the last person with Gwen? Because according to Emmanuel and Nicole, as well as Jose and Paul, Gwen left at 10 p.m. on the night of October 3rd. And so Detective Sanchez and Ortega wanted to make sure that Michael, as well as Jason, and anyone else who was at the party was also going to, you know, agree to what Emmanuel and Nicole was stating, which was that Gwen was at the party until 10 p.m. Well, that's what they all agreed to. They basically all stated that Gwen was there until 10 p.m. And so for about two weeks, the detectives are interviewing other people, um, members of Gwen's high school, because Gwen unfortunately was bullied in high school due to her gender identity. And so it was very important to make sure that this was an avenue that they explored to make sure that there was no form of um, bullying or something that happened on her way back home. Um, so the theory was, was that Gwen left the party on the night of Thursday, October 3rd, around 10 p.m. She goes back to her home where she encounters some sort of foul play and or either she just left on her own due to the severe bullying of high school, uh, from her high school, as well as just, you know, family life. So they weren't quite sure which avenue to explore initially. Well... Nonetheless, you know, they decide to continue to interview and interview Nicole, especially Detective Ortega. She felt that there was something about Nicole Brown that could really get this case going. And so she talks to Nicole around October 15th and Nicole agrees to come in um, to talk to Detective Ortega one more time and as she's talking to Detective Ortega she admits to knowing that um, Michael Magison and Jaron Neighbors in particular know a little bit more about what happened to Gwen and so Jaron at this point between October 6th at the time that they're all being questioned to October 15th has been arrested and he's now in the Alameda County Sheriff's Department and he is talking and he is talking a lot and what he has to say shocks detectives because they thought that they knew where this case was going but they had no idea the brutality that this case was really going to go into. And so again, I just want to welcome you, my audience. Thank you all so much for being part of this amazing episode, season two, episode seven. You know, again, this is just, I am just so amazed at how much a hateful homicide continues to grow and thrive. It is just truly, truly such an amazing, amazing thing. And so again, welcome this case, you know, as we continue to go through it, it's going to talk about attraction, conspiracy, lust, violence, um, youth. And then again, we, and we, we have to talk about this idea of deception. You know, there is this, this element that's often brought into these cases that we talk about, about when it feels like that the person, um, that the victim, 
that the victim has now deceived or tricked the perpetrators. And, you know, in this case here, there's so much twists and turns because Gwen goes to a party. You know, she trusts Nicole, though they're not, you know, BFFs, but, you know, she had no reason to think that this woman that she's known for two years would play this pivotal role in her hateful homicide. And so, you know, again, it's just, it's really heartbreaking as we we delve into this case because it is such a senseless, senseless homicide of of the 17-year-old transgender girl who had her life ahead of her. Just, you know, this homicide happened just three weeks before Halloween. She's literally three weeks into her senior year of high school, which she was contemplating on, you know, dropping out because of the intense bullying. And as we've seen in other cases that we've covered in season two with some of our youth, that bullying is definitely an element that plays into the idea of trigger warning, self-harming, suicide. And so all of this is certainly things that Gwen was facing and dealing with herself. And so when we take a look at this case, it's really important, excuse me, that we think about how Gwen's identity, her, her willingness to be herself and stand in her truth and be bold led to this hateful homicide. But as we go through this case, I want to also take a moment and give you all an idea into how Jaren Neighbors ultimately led Detective Sanchez and Ortega to Gwen's body. Dispatched four crime scene investigators and two detectives who recovered the body at the grave site. On October 16, 2002, the officers were led by Jared Neighbors, the youngest of the four individuals charged with the murder and hate crime. The four accused of the murder are Michael Magnuson, 27, Jared Neighbors, 19, Jose Merrill, 24, and Jason Casares, 23. Jared Neighbors later testified against the other three in a deal with the DA for a lesser charge of manslaughter after police monitored a jailhouse letter and information gained during a conversation with one of the accused using a wiretap. Magnuson, Merrill, Neighbors, and Casares. At trial, Neighbors testified that Araujo had consensual sex with a female before it was revealed that she was biologically male. Araujo was beaten and strangled to death, hogtied, wrapped in a blanket, and buried in the Sierra Nevada foothills. In exchange for his testimony against the other defendants, Neighbors pleaded guilty to voluntary manslaughter. The other three men, charged with first-degree murder and committing a hate crime, invoked the transgender panic defense, claiming that the victim provoked the attack by having sex under pretenses. By invoking this defense, Magnuson, were convicted of second-degree murder and acquitted of the hate crime. Casares pleaded no contest to voluntary manslaughter. Merrill and Magnuson were both sentenced to 15 years to life in state prison. Casares was prosecuted along with Merrill and Magnuson at two highly publicized trials in 2004 and 2005, but jurors deadlocked on his fate in both trials. He pleaded no contest to the lesser charge of voluntary manslaughter in December 2005, so he wouldn't have to risk a murder conviction at a third trial, and was sentenced one month later to six years in state prison. Jurors deadlocked on the fate of all three defendants at their first trial in 2004, and Marilyn Magnuson were convicted at the end of the second trial. Casares and neighbors have both been out of prison for many years. 
Let's go back to the night of September 5th, 2002. Gwen Araujo meets Michael Mackinson, Jose Merrill, Jaron Neighbors, and Jason Cesares. She meets them like a lot of teenagers meet at a high school party. So this would have been around, you know, again, September 5th, school year's beginning. It's a back-to-school party, and Gwen meets these four older guys. They all connect. She flirts. They flirt. They all, you know, smoke a little marijuana. They have some good times. And then, you know, what happens at this party, this back-to-school party, is that her and Michael Mackinson, Mackinson, excuse me, initially engage in um, sex. They have sex. And so he wanted to ultimately um, engage in vaginal, frontal vaginal sex. Um, And the two had initially engaged in oral and anal. And so when Gwen stated that she was not able to do vaginal sex, frontal sex due to being on her cycle, that definitely increased um, initially not Magnuson's suspicions, right? Because she's a 17-year-old young girl. Cycles happen. These things are very common. However, Nicole had known, you know, Gwen at this point now for a couple of years. And so, you know, she had, I don't want to say she was suspicious, but she had always kind of just, you know, felt this this something about Gwen. She just felt, you know, just this sense of something wasn't quite right with Gwen. And so when Jose, the brother of Emmanuel and Paul, as well as Jaron, Jason, and Michael talk about Gwen and Nicole says, oh, I know her too, right? Then they all start to have this conversation. And one of the things that um, is admitted in this conversation by Michael is the the conversation about the menstrual cycle. And so um, one of the other men who also partaked in sex with Gwen had mentioned that she had given another excuse. And so the two started to compare the statements and were like, well, how can this be the case if she is on if she's menstruating. And so at that moment, suspicion arose. And so Nicole was like, well, hey, Gwen and I have known each other for a couple of years. You know, I've I've always kind of wondered a little bit, but so let's let's bring her over to a party. And so it was about several weeks later and Gwen was invited to the housewarming party. Again, she already knew Jose as well. So her and Jose, Jose was the other guy who she had sex with, so Jose and Michael. And so she knew Jose, Paul, and again, the brother, Emmanuel, and Nicole. So Gwen knew all of these individuals and she had no idea that she was walking into a setup. The reality was is that Gwen was being set up for the suspicion that each of these individuals had. They all wanted to know Gwen's gender identity. They wanted to know what they believed was their right to, um, to truth. And so that's what the party was for. It wasn't for a kickback or a get together. It was a confrontation. And so, you know, initially everything goes well. They're playing cards. They're all just sitting around chatting, listening to music. Gwen opens up about her love for Gwen Stefani because of Gwen Stefani, um, no doubt, song that came on. And so she had mentioned, you know, how her mother had, you know, always loved the name Gwen. And so then um, that kind of evoked this conversation around 
you know, was Gwen her real name because she had went by Lita. And so then after that, they wanted to know her gender identity. And so Gwen is ready to leave. It's around 11 p.m. on the night of October 3rd, 2002. This is a Thursday night. Gwen knows she has to be home. She's told her mother, Sylvia, that she'll be home. Um, She's becoming uncomfortable. She realizes that the questioning um, is becoming intense and it's more aimed at her and her anatomy. And so um, Michael and Jose immediately um, grab her and take her to the restroom. And so Michael states that he wants to be alone with Gwen. He puts her on the counter and he begins to kiss her. He's still very much attracted to Gwen. He's not quite sure if she's trans, but nonetheless, the two partake in a round of oral sex. And so after that, um, he comes back out and he admits that he, you know, wasn't ready to investigate. So Nicole goes in to the bathroom and she is more forceful and she does this inspection and she uncovers Gwen's anatomy and blurts out, you know, that Gwen is assigned male at birth, um, not in so many words. And ultimately this leads to Gwen fearing for her life. She wants to leave. She asks to leave. The men tell her no. Nicole, as well as Emmanuel, leave the home. And um, they admit that they did try to talk the men out of not pursuing with violence. But uh, they had already made up their mind that if it was discovered that Gwen was trans, that they would kill her. Even though Emmanuel and Nicole both knew this, they still refused to notify authorities. Partly, Emmanuel felt loyalty to his brothers, and then also Nicole felt loyalty to her boyfriend, Emmanuel, as well as his brothers and the friends. They all also felt that, you know, it was Gwen's fault that she should have disclosed or she should have never participated in sex with them. So this is the the theory, this is the ideology that they have, the logic that they have for brutally beating Gwen with a pan, with a hammer, with a bat, um, viciously to where she's unconscious. And then going into the early morning hours of Friday, October 4th, where the stabbing and she's tied like a hog. And then she's strangled where she's ultimately placed in the back of Jose's truck and then dumped in the Northern California woods for two weeks, badly decomposing, almost mummifying in a way. She was able to be identified through dental records that her mother provided. And so, you know, as this autopsy is being performed on her body and Jaron is conveying all of this information, right? Because, you know, he's now revealed the body. The detectives have placed the body um, to the Alameda County's, you know, morgue and they're doing her autopsy to see exactly what happened and one of the things that Jaron admits to is that all of them after they dumped Gwen's body they go and have breakfast at IHOP and they talk about how they wish they could do it again how that killing Gwen once wasn't enough 
that they wanted to do it again and again and again. And so, you know, again, it's just really heartbreaking as we go through this case, but I wanted to take a moment now and talk a little bit more about who Gwen was and who she meant to the community, who she meant to her family. She was born on February 24th, 1985 in Brawley, California. She was the daughter of Edward Arajo Sr. and Sylvia Guerrero, who divorced when she was only 10 months old in 1999, just at the age of 14. She, again, loved the group, no doubt, and she loved the artist Gwen Stefani, who is now married to Blake Shelton. So Gwen would be very happy to see that her favorite artist has, you know, found the love uh, but nonetheless, um, she ultimately chose the name Quinn, and then she also used the middle name Amber Rose. Amber Rose came from her mother, Sylvia Guerrero, who always felt that she was carrying a daughter, and so that was going to be Quinn's name until um, she was assigned male at birth. Um, she did also have an older sister as well as two younger brothers. But again, Gwen did uh, begin her gender journey socially and medically around the age of 14. And that's where she received her support. Initially, she did not have the support of her family, though. Her mom does talk about you know, struggling with coming to Gwen's, uh, coming to terms with Gwen's gender identity, um, initially believing that it was a phase. This is a very common mentality for parents to take and Gwen's mother was not, you know, was very similar to like a lot of other parents and their thinking. Gwen's father, however, um, was not much in the picture. And so um, at the time of Gwen's death, he was made aware of, of the, the hateful homicide, this setup that, that Gwen was faced with by Nicole and Emmanuel. And she and his dad, I mean, her dad, you know, really talks about the impact that this has on his life, you know, how he wished he could have been a better dad to Gwen, how he wished he could have been there for Gwen. Gwen did also go by Wendy and Lita as well. And so again, um, the men, Michael, as well as Sharon, Jason, and Jose, they all knew her as, um, as Lita. And so Gwen, who was known for being artistic, and she loved grungy music, and she loved furry animals, and she had a favorite color of like black and pink. So she really just excelled in anything that she wanted to do. She loved fashion, she loved the makeup, she was really good at doing makeup, and she was an amazing aunt. Her sister had was a, was a new mother, and so around October 3rd, the night of where the brutal beating began and then of course the morning of the hateful homicide on the 4th, Gwen had a much closer relationship with her family. She was close with her sister, her brothers, her mom. She was even getting closer with her grandparents and her uncle. So there was growth that was there. And so again, you know, you just look back at this case and you think this young woman who, though she had obstacles, right, with dealing with family acceptance, dealing with bullying in high school, she was still pushing through every day. And, you know, we can sit here as a collective and say, oh, well, Gwen was having sex with these guys. But we have to understand that we all have been or we all may in some way identify as a young person with hormones. And when you're young and you're hormonal, 
and whether we can talk about disclosure being a theme. Gwen was just a teenager, like a lot of us who can relate, who just wanted love and acceptance. And and so many times what we do, and, 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 and maybe you can or cannot relate, but we do, you know, we will partake in sex. We will partake in sexual pleasures and activities to make our partner like us, want us. And this is very common in cis and trans relationships. And Gwen was no exception to that. And so, you know, I don't fault Gwen at all for partaking in sex with Michael and Jose. I think it was part of what a lot of us do as teenagers as part of that hookup culture. But of course, it is so important that we as trans people do have those conversations with partners but being 17 being young not being fully aware of the dangers is so common and myself who works as an advocate you know I I have conversations very often with clients who will disclose their fear of being attacked being beaten sexually assaulted murdered for disclosing there's so much that goes into this and so again my audience i know some of us can sit here and say oh you know if she would have disclosed that doesn't change the fact that gwen was still a person who didn't deserve to be murdered um you don't get to murder someone just because they don't tell you that they're transgender that's not a reason and so none of these guys none of these individuals had the right to take gwen's life and nicole and emmanuel did not have the right to, uh, you know, withheld this information from authorities for so long. And the only reason, and I'm going to be very transparent, that Jared even told where um, Gwen's body was, was not only to get out of, to get a lesser deal, which he did, um, but then also because he had confessed to his girlfriend. And so they had these audio conversations of Jaron talking to his girlfriend about the hateful homicide. So at that point, he really had no other choice but to ultimately confess and save himself. And so he did, you know, testify against the other men um, in this case. But, you know, at the same time, you know, he was definitely a, a big role, but... I just want us to make sure that we're understanding that when we think about this idea of disclosure, that we take into account the importance of safety and and the type of vulnerability that it takes. Um, And unfortunately, a lot of us and some of us may not be in that space to disclose, but that doesn't mean that we won't and that we and, and, the, and that it can't happen. But it also takes a level of being safe and comfortable. And I believe that's what Gwen was doing. And though, again, we can go into the whole sexual aspect of this. Gwen was set up to be murdered on the night of October 3rd. She was beaten with multiple objects by multiple men. She was stabbed, strangled, hogtied and ultimately buried in the woods. And so this is what happened and it is not her fault. And we have to make sure that we as a group continue to raise awareness. You know, again, it is so important. This is still the month of November and though Trans Awareness Week is over, I just encourage each and every one of you to understand that these hateful homicides are so unnecessary. This was truly a senseless tragedy. A simple conversation with Gwen about her gender identity um, or making her feel safe in that space could have been 
could have changed the whole dynamic. You know, they could have made that conversation safe for Gwen without making it so intimidating by snatching her up, putting her in a bathroom, forcing her pants down, grabbing her anatomy, blurting out, you know, expletives, and then reacting in a way that was so violent. That's not normal and that's not typical. And it's not what should be expected of people, especially for people who identify as trans. We shouldn't have to worry that if we don't disclose that we're going to be murdered when at the end of the day, we have the right to disclose when we feel safe and secure. And unfortunately, this hateful homicide is an example of an environment that was not safe and secure for Quinn. But I do want to take a moment as well and give you all a little bit of context into just also the impact that this had on the community as well as just, you know, members throughout um, Gwen's high school that our community produced that kind of behavior. I heard the mayor say that Gwen's murder was an exception, that Newark is really a tolerant community. I must differ. That, like the terrorizing of gay kids and whatnot was a new thing. That, like it never- This is safety concern. Some voiced uneasiness with Gwen's transgender identity. However, the wrong message is that Eddie's death was a hate crime. The real message, I believe, is that we as parents need to educate our children and about the dangers of deceiving others. It is not something they teach you at mayor's school. You do not learn how to deal with these, these types of tragedies. We recommend that the city council issue a statement encouraging and supporting the school district in its efforts to fully comply with California School Safety and Violence Prevention Act of 2000. Our concern was we want our citizens, whoever they are, to feel safe in our community. People say, well, you know, we need to promote tolerance. What a lot of people have to get past that, no, you don't tolerate people, you accept them. And that's the goal, right? To make sure that we as a people are being accepting of everyone. And that is the goal that, you know, Alameda County and the city of New York has tried to do since this hateful homicide of 2002. I want to take a moment as well as to talk about the trials of Jaron Neighbors, Michael Magenson, Jose Merrill, as well as Jason Cesares. So Jaron Neighbors ultimately pled guilty on February 24th, which was Gwen's, would have been Gwen's 18th birthday. Um, he pled to the lesser charge of voluntary manslaughter. And this would ultimately carry an 11 year prison sentence. He did agree to testify against the three other defendants. Um, and so at this time, when he entered his formal plea, Judge Kenneth Byrne, the ruling judge who presided over his case, warned neighbors that he could still be charged with murder if the prosecutors found he wasn't, quote unquote, living up to his end of the bargain. So he did receive an 11 year sentence officially on August 25th of 2006 with a credit for time served where he was ex um, expected to spend approximately five years in jail from that point on. He was ultimately released in 2012. Magazin, Merrill, and Cesares, they would go to trial and their first trial, which was prosecuted under the um, attorney, Chris Lamero, he argued that simply being transgender should not have been a death sentence. 
quote unquote, he states, one can debate the propriety of one choosing to identify with a gender other than the one they were born with. But I trust juries to understand that people don't get to make life or death decisions simply based on someone's lifestyle. That's not a world in which we live or most people want to live in. So when the jury selection began for their trials and they all were tried together, which began on March 15th of 2004, prospective jurors were asked how they identified sexually as well as their gender. Um, And then of course, if they did identify as trans, the defense attorneys tried to make sure that anyone who identified within the community would not be able to serve as a juror. The first trial began on April 14th of 2004. Unfortunately, Gwen's case did occur a lot of misgendering. Her trial, the um, attorney Lamero used a lot of male pronouns, but nonetheless, he did do whatever he could to make sure that Gwen's case did seek justice, that justice would be served. Well, there was a hung jury a mistrial on June 22nd. There was a day, well, more like nine days of deliberating. The jurors were unable to reach a unanimous decision for the three men. They agreed that Araujo had been murdered, but they couldn't determine if it was premeditated. The votes were 10 to two in favor of acquitting Merrill and Cesares of first degree murder and seven to five in favor of convicting Madison of first degree murder. So that was where the dilemma happened. Well, prosecuting attorney Lamero said, let's go to court again. The second trial began on May 31st, 2005. This time more activists from the trans community was aware and they were visible and there and present at the trial. And so again, there was just a lot more visibility around this case, so much to the point that the case actually garnered a, a movie. A movie was made called A Girl Like Me, which was released in 2006 following the trial, the second trial. Um, and so they were ultimately again charged with first degree murder and also this time with hate crime enhancements. The second time around, Prosecutor Lamero did refer to Gwen as Gwen and used female pronouns. So see, my audience, growth can happen. So again, around September 8th of 2005, the jury announced that they had reached a verdict on two of the three defendants. Judge Harry Shepard instructed the verdicts were to be kept secret. Finally, after a week on September 12th of deliberation, the, de- uh, the verdicts were deliberated for all. It had been initially deadlocked on Cesare's voting 9-3 in favor of convicting him for murder. However, for Mackinson and Merrill, they were convicted on the charge of second-degree murder, but unfortunately they weren't convicted of hate crime enhancements. After the trial, one of the jurors stated in an interview with the San Francisco Chronicle that the murder conviction was because the community standard is not and cannot be that killing is something a reasonable person would have done that night. But not hate crime since the murder was believed to have been committed, not because Araujo was trans, but to cover up a situation had got, that had gotten out of control. So my audience, there you have it. You know, 
these men were ultimately sentenced to 15 years to life in prison and they are currently still serving time in prison. However, as we prepare to conclude this case, I want to take a moment and just give you a little bit of response from when Jaren was paroled, as well as just also some additional feedback from family members and loved ones of Gwen. Again, Gwen, you have just been such an amazing influence. Your case garnered so much attention in such an early period of time. Your case for trans women was such a visibility in 2002. And we had to take a moment and just acknowledge that, you know, almost 20 years later, since this hateful homicide, since you were so tragically set up. But we definitely see you and we remember you. So I just want to to take a few moments and let you all hear these remarks from some of Gwen's loved ones, as well as how um, they felt regarding Gwen's killers, one of them particularly being paroled. It was a heinous crime more than a decade ago. The scars still fresh, yet the victim's mother is willing to forgive her daughter's killers. It's been really hard. October 3rd, 2002. Gwen Araujo attended a house party in Newark. It was the last time the transgender teen was seen alive. There were so many hours that went by that they had time enough to stop what they were doing, but they did not. The final hours of her life were bloody and painful. A group of young men she met that summer beat, strangled, hogtied, then buried the New York high school student's body in the Sierra foothills. They buried her three feet deep and they placed three boulder rocks on her body the animals wouldn't dig her up. The heaviest boulder rock was placed on her face. It took three sheriffs to remove that boulder rock. So it had crushed her head and the side of her face. No one from the party reported the crime, but two days later, one of the killers, Jaron Neighbors, confided in a friend. Two weeks later, he led deputies to her body. Neighbors Jason Casares, Jose Merrill, and Michael Magidson claimed trans panic as a reason for the murder. Gwen was in fact a biological male named Edward, and that deadly night she had sex with two of her four killers. She didn't deserve to die. This kid was so full of life and had goals and dreams of her own. Neighbors and Casares both served prison time for manslaughter and have since been released. But Merrill and Magidson, who were intimate with Gwen, both got the maximum, 15 to life, for second-degree murder. Just last month, Merrill's parole was approved with the blessing of Gwen's mother, Sylvia. She forgives Merrill now, saying Merrill has always shown regret, and forgiveness is a part of her own healing process. In fact, Sylvia empathizes with Merrill. While in prison, his daughter died. When he lost her, goodbye. He no longer gets to hold her or love her or hear her voice. Just as I don't. But Sylvia says Magidson is still unremorseful and agrees he's unfit to be set free. At his own parole hearing last month, he said he needed more time in the system to deal with substance abuse issues. His parole was denied. There's just nothing there but evil and cold and it's really sad. And until he acknowledges his role in her daughter's death, Sylvie says she will continue to oppose Magidson's release. And she'll never stop fighting for the transgender community, a promise she made at Gwen's funeral. 
Well, I'm proud to say that I know that my daughter's death started the whole transgender movement. 2015 held the record for transgender people killed in the U.S. with a total of 21. Unfortunately, there's still people being killed for who they are. This year's number surpassed last year's with a total 23 trans homicides across America. We have a lot of work to do. There's still a lot of danger out there. There's a lot of people out there that will do what they did to my daughter 14 years ago. It's been more than a decade, and a life of pain has left emotional scars. Sylvia says she now has PTSD. Before her daughter's murder, she was a legal secretary for nearly two decades. I've never not had my own place, my own dresser, my own closet. Now, she's unemployed, homeless, and living in a friend's car. Her current plight doesn't cloud her vision as she continues to fight for lives that are taken because of hate. Reporting in Newark, Alicia Reed, Cron 4 News. We remember you. Gwen Amber Rose Araujo. Yesterday, today, tomorrow, forever, and always. Born February 24th, 1985, and resting on since October 4th, 2002. Again, thank you all so much, my audience, for tuning in to this episode of A Hateful Homicide. My name is Mallory Jenna Robinson, your host. Please follow us on A Hateful Homicide. You can also follow me at Mallory Jenna 90. You can also listen to us on Anchor, Apple, and Spotify podcasts. Please use the hashtags A Hateful Homicide, True Crime, Podcasts, Suspenseful Saturdays, as well as Trans Awareness. Again, thank you all for tuning in, and I hope you tune in next Saturday, 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. Again, thank you and enjoy the rest of your day. Bye-bye.